in those family stories, even the ones that dad tells that we roll our eyes at, right, are contained the things that our family believes and cherishes, you know, that it's all there. And revisiting those stories again and again and again and sort of defining kind of what that canon of stories is, what stories are included in it, is an exercise in sort of defining, again, who we are, what we believe, what we think. Life gets easier if we figure it out together. Welcome to The Lisa Show. When I think about family culture, I think about the safe place sign. It was a framed picture, like in a picture frame, like an 8 by 11, and it was just the text. It said, no put-downs in big lettering, and then underneath it said, this is a safe place. And we just always had it in my living room or I think sometimes it was my kitchen or a den. It was just there. I'm sure there were multiple copies where you could see. And it was just part of our family life. And so I called my mom to see how she remembers all of this. Why did you and dad decide to put up the safe place sign? How did that come to be? (laughs) Well... Your dad would say things, and he was in the university community. And he would say things that you would say to people that you were trying to sound clever to, and people would get it, and it was a joke, and so forth. And so I just said to him one time, I said, you can't talk that way around our children because they don't know that you're using sarcasm or that you're being ironic. Stable versus unstable irony. Yeah, stable versus unstable irony. I said, your kids don't understand that. And you have to speak to them in a plain way. They may take it wrong. You need to have plain speak. And that's when he started talking about saying what you really mean and not using this other type of language to communicate with people. You need to say kind of a yay, yay, nay, nay type thing. Say what you mean. And it wasn't cruel. It was just, you know, like I say, ironic or sarcastic or whatever. But I remember also a brother-in-law that said that he grew up with a group of boys and they would say things to each other. And as they got older, they'd have to say something a little bit more severe and then cut each other down. And he said, by the time we were older teenagers, I didn't know if they really meant it or not. And I think that he said, I, I, I know my brothers love me, but they'd say these mean things and it was funny and we'd all laugh but it really wasn't funny it it, you know hit to the core so anyway we wanted to avoid that sort of a thing and that's why that's how the the put downs it was just don't say those things to your children because they don't understand that language I would have steady groups come over or friends or dates or whatever. And inevitably, someone would always comment on the sign. No put downs. This is a safe place. What does that mean? And I'd say, I was so annoyed by it. Um, By the time I was in junior high, I'd be like, well, it means that like you don't call each other's names and we don't swear at each other and we're just to be nice. (laughs) You know, and I just like, now come on, come on my room. Let's go play. So I remember how it kind of changed and morphed as I, as I got older. And one time I was having a study group my senior year and somebody new came over and we a big group of us were studying in the basement. I guess the sign was there in the basement as well. And somebody who had never, you know, been there, we were studying and we were giving each other like quizzes or something. And, and one of my friends had made a mistake and you know, used a curse word or called somebody a name or something like that. And I didn't say anything. And all the rest of my friends, the ones who had been over several times, you know, throughout the years were like, dude, not at the Valentine. Read the sign. This is a safe place. Read the sign. This is a safe place. And my poor friend was like, oh, I am so sorry. I didn't know. Lisa, I am so sorry. And I was like, it's okay. 
it's okay. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But I thought that was so funny that I didn't even need to say anything about it. It had just become a thing that my friends were like, no put downs. This is a safe place. It had become what the Valentine family home was known for. In fact, so much so that when I would come home from college or when we would refer to my childhood home, my friends and myself now would often refer to it as the safe place. Hey, we'll just meet at the safe place and then we'll go to dinner or we'll go to the party or whatever like that. Oh yeah, let's meet at the safe place. Safe place is where you try. I think it works on the individual, you know, what's within my power, only those things I can do. That I will say those things that I really mean, that I won't say something that would hurt someone else to make me feel better or whatever. I just wanted us to be able to talk to each other in a plain language that if we were angry, that we could also say how we felt or if we were hurt, you could say what you felt and knew that there weren't the repercussions because it was a safe place. You could say that. It's part of the forgiveness and just trying to live at peace with people and your family. I wanted peace and happiness in our family. When you walked through that door, you knew that you were safe. Someone wasn't going to make fun of you. Not that it didn't happen because that's part of growing up. But I think you have to give kids a standard to start from. And, of course, they'll deviate, but you come back to the, the place that you want them to be at. We want this home to be peaceful. We want this home to be happy. We want there to be kindness. And where do you learn it? You learn it at home. I think that this story means so much more to me now looking back because we've sold that family home years and years and years ago and I have so many great memories of that. And then now me as a mother establishing my home with my own children and I of course have the sign, no put downs, this is a safe place in my own home, uh, kind of for nostalgia, but also because it became such a thing, not only just because, you know, my friends were able to recognize it and my brothers and sisters' friends were, but because I can see what my parents were trying to create and what they really did create. And we don't insult each other and hit below the belt. And we can disagree and do it in a kind, loving way. And that is a huge value that I appreciate my parents giving me and one that I hope that I'm gonna be passing on to my children as well. I can see you kids out in the world today. You're kind to people outside, and that's why you want to talk to them in line or whatever. <laughs> we can't help talking to everybody. We want everyone in the circle. And, and I think you look at the world differently, too. I would think that most of us like to think that the people around us have good intentions, and they want the same things as we do. We know that isn't true always. But I do think that's the way we can spread it, by reacting to them in kind ways, ways that they will say, oh, that person was, was interested in me, or they listened to what I had to say, or I don't know. And we know it's, it's, yeah, there's so many problems in the world. Just don't want to be part of the problems. It's so much better to be part of the solution. It's an interesting idea to not only be aware of the family culture that you have, but to be very intentional about creating one and doing it well. And that's why I have invited Lisa Yvonne on the show. She deals with the moments at home, and it's a place to get inspired to create a family rhythm marked by laughter, hugs, and the occasional mess. Uh, her philosophy is home isn't about perfection, it's about belonging. Thank you, Lisa, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You have a passion for family culture, and I love that, and I'm drawn to it because it was something that I didn't really talk about growing up, and with my friends as we started having kids, we talked about the things that we wanted to do but maybe didn't use the term family culture like that. So what does family culture mean to you? So 
really, it's just the way we live life together. But when I break it down more intentionally, it's a combination of our habits, our traditions, our purpose as a family, the values that we use to make decisions, the core beliefs that we each have, and the choices that we make because of them. And all of that comes together and creates our family culture. Now, I can't really get into our conversation without acknowledging that you're the mother of eight and that you're currently living in Ukraine. What is that like? Um, Well, we are in the west part of the country right now, so we are not seeing active conflict, although it definitely affects life here and it definitely shapes the ministry that we're doing here because we're serving those who have been displaced and who have been through a lot of trauma. But it was a decision that we actually made together, the, the youngest child to the oldest child and the parents, we agreed to stay. We came here to help and serve and our values drive that choice. And we talked about leaving and we had several of our kids go, if you go, I'm staying behind because we still have things to do. And so our family culture is very much that of service. Wow. Okay. So there's so much in there. A family culture of service, yes, but also resilience. How did you establish that? You know, it was very different for us because I'm an only child of a single mom. My husband has one sibling and his parents divorced when he became an adult. And we wanted to raise a family that was very different than that. Neither one of us had seen a thriving, large family firsthand. We'd gotten glimpses through friends' families. And so we really didn't know what we were doing. So we went straight to scripture and we studied the Bible And we talked about things that we liked in other families and things that we didn't like. And we just set about day by day creating that kind of family. And there were a few pieces of advice here and there that other moms gave me that I wrote down that I still have in my Bible and in my journals that really stood out and kind of shaped how we parented. But as far as resiliency specifically goes, I think that happened when we adopted children from Ukraine about 10 years ago now, because we had to learn to bounce back from setbacks. We have two children with special needs and some of them are kind of severe. And we learned to always go back to what we knew. So traditions and rhythms became anchor points in our lives that gave us continuity in the midst of so much unknown and unpredictable situations. So what are some of those traditions that served as those anchor points? I think the one that my kids cling to the most is every night we play the thankful game. We say three things out loud that we're each thankful for from that day because gratitude orients your heart and mind towards the good things instead of the negative things. And we think it's great to do that right before bed. And we believe that gratitude should drive all of our choices and decisions and actions. And so that's a huge one. That's a daily rhythm. We also sing our prayer before our meals. And that's something that we look forward to every day. And then larger traditions would be the way we celebrate birthdays. And with a family of 10, we have a lot of opportunities to do that. The way that we celebrate holidays and welcome in each season. And so we just have these little things that we cling to. And so even when we were moving overseas and I said to the kids, you know, we can't bring everything. You know, if we could only bring one thing, what would it be? And every single child said the same thing. And it was the book and the candle that we read and we light for Christmas every year for Advent. Wow. And they're all on board. Yeah. You know, amid so much stress and uncertainty, certainly in the Ukraine, most dramatically, but also I think every family knows what that's like, right? We don't parent under perfect circumstances. No one does. But yet sometimes we like try to create these like rules and ideas for what we want our family to be like when everything settles down or when everything is calm or sort of perfect. So how have you pivoted when things don't go as planned? So we have what we call touch points. And I think this is something that's more intentional with the parents that the kids just expect. But we have breakfast together. We play a game together every afternoon. Like I play so many games because each kid gets one-on-one time with me every day playing a game for like five to 10 minutes each. And we have the thankful game in the evening. And then we have our bedtime routine where daddy reads a story and mommy sings a song and we pray together. And, And my oldest son was busy one night and I didn't call him for prayer and song. And I thought, you know, he's, he's older. He's basically old enough to be on his own. He doesn't care. And he came to me later and he said, don't, don't do that again. This is an important part of my day and I look forward to it. Wow. And so we all just kind of grab onto those moments. And so even if we miss one or the day is chaotic, we can do it. Like if I travel, 
I, I still call home and we pray together at night together. When my husband was was traveling, he still recorded the bedtime song that he sings to our kids in their bedroom each night so that I could play it on the iPad for them before they went to sleep. So we just cling to those little things that are special to us that give the kids anchors. I love the intention that you have with what you do. You've certainly had a lot of experience with different kinds of kids and different phases of life. What is the aspect now of family culture that you're the most focused on or maybe is the most difficult right now that you're trying to solve? Right now, I would say the biggest challenge is probably habits and routines together because life is so unpredictable. And we have almost like two sets of kids. We have our big kids and we have our little kids. And right in the middle are our kids with special needs. And so it's almost like we're parenting in three very different seasons of life. And merging those seasons into the same day is very unique. (laughs) I bet. How do you do it without feeling so fragmented? Like feeling like one, one unit, you know, as a family. Lots of coffee, lots of laughter, and lots of forgiveness. And letting go of perfection. I'm a type A perfectionist that has had to get over that. How do you get over that? (laughs) You can't have eight kids and still cling to that. Um, Yeah. But honestly, it's because there are things that are more important than it. And so laughing instead of getting upset when something breaks, as long as everybody's okay, focusing on what matters. And sometimes I say it out loud to remind myself, not them. It's just a thing. You're what's important pick them up, move them out of the way of the broken glass and move on with the day. And it's those kinds of responses that frame our culture and frame our family relationships. Because now I'll hear them when, when something breaks with a toy or a Lego set, you know what? It's okay. It's a thing. Are you okay? And pick it up because we say it out loud. You know, earlier in our conversation, I, you know, had expressed that sometimes we don't talk about family culture in a formal way, right? It's like, oh, this is just what we do in our family. And even though I didn't talk about it growing up, I can look back and say, oh, this is part of our culture, you know, especially as I created my own family with my late husband, right? Like you're intentional about certain things. Like we want to be the family that does this or doesn't do that or speaks that way. What do you think for those who kind of struggle to know how to talk about it, how you best recognize the most important elements in a family culture? I think it's the things that you enjoy together and that your kids naturally talk about. That kind of tells you how they identify the family culture. And if you don't like the way the conversation is going, it's a great clue as a mom, hey, I can change this. And if you love the way it's going, you say, hey, I can give them more of this or reinforce this. And so our kids kind of show us what we've created, whether we've done it intentionally or unintentionally. There are a lot of people who find themselves in life circumstances that are not ideal. And you talked about being raised by a single mom, no siblings, Those kinds of situations can be difficult if that's not what you wanted, but life has just handed it to you. For people who find themselves in a family culture and they they want to change it, they want to strengthen it, and to kind of steer that ship is a huge, (laughs) that's really, really hard. I find myself, if I can just pull back the curtain a little bit, in that kind of situation where now I'm a single mom, three of my kids are adults baby adults, I like to say, and I have two at home. I want a strong family culture, but it's going to be different than it looked like a few years ago. And sometimes when you're dealing with not the ideal, it can be so frustrating because you know what you want, but you can't necessarily achieve it in the same way. You got to be a little bit creative. Have you experienced something like that? And what did you do to be able to really get to a place where you can still be intentional with your family culture? You know, I relate to that a lot. Not the single mom thing, obviously, because I'm married. And so I can't say I relate to that completely. But I relate to the idea that life is not what you expect it to look like. We never expected to be a homeschooling family. I never thought I would have a husband who worked 60 to 80 hours a week so I could be a stay-at-home mom when they were growing up. Just like I never expected to be the one working now while he's doing a lot more around the home. So we've had situations where life did not look like we wanted. And the thing that I had to come to terms with, my husband's much more sanguine than I am, so it was a lot easier for him. But I, being that control freak that I am, 
I think the gift that has come to me with years, and I can say that at 42, I'm a lot different than I was at 22, is that I accept who I am without giving myself permission to stay that way. So I don't rue the reality that I'm in today. I don't waste my time getting upset about it. I accept it for what it is. And I go, okay, but what can I change about it? And I change that one little thing. And for me, the, the biggest change that I made when my husband switched from working days to working nights was I started getting up earlier in the morning so I could have a few minutes alone with him before the kids woke up in the morning. I'm not an early morning person. I do my best work late at night. And it was a huge shift for me. And I had so many friends whose husbands worked third shift and they would all talk about how much they hated it and they would complain about it and they would get angry about it. And I didn't want to be like that because I, I, I remember hearing their frustration. They'd spent years being angry while they worked those hours. And I just want to be thankful for everything. So instead, I started thanking God each night that he had a job to go to and that he was willing to work those hours for us. And saying out loud what I was thankful for helped change my perception of the reality that we were living. It didn't change the reality itself, but it put me in a better frame of mind so I could do things like, hey, let me wake up a little earlier. Let me take a nap when my baby napped in the middle of the day so I could be up late enough to say goodnight to him when he left, even though I wanted to be in bed by then because I'd gotten up so early that morning. And so being thankful and accepting the reality helped me find creative ways to respond to it. And so life just stinks sometimes. It really does. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you're a victim of life, but you don't have to have a victim mindset. You get to still choose what you can control and you get to choose how you react to what you can't control. Yeah. And sometimes that's as simple as choosing breakfast for dinner because it's easy and you just don't want to fight another battle. <laughs> and sometimes it's as simple as going, you know what? We are going to wear our pajamas all day because I don't want to do one more load of laundry this week. So don't get dressed. But that's okay. And you know what? That's how pajama day became part of our family culture because I wanted 24 hours off from laundry. <laughs> My kids have no clue that that was the motivation. But it works really well for us. And we've been doing it for like 12 years. Every summer we do ice cream for dinner. They didn't know it's because at the time when they were all little, their dad was gone for a month out of town and I didn't want to make dinner. And they just think it's this big fun party that I just, and I was like, yeah, we're having ice cream for dinner and we'll never know when it is. It'll just be yeah. a surprise. And it always falls on the day when I've had enough. <laughs> Totally. So we accept what is and we find a way to laugh through it and creatively face it. And that's okay. I love it. I love this conversation because it's some really important ideas about why it is worth it to be a little bit more intentional about what our family culture is. It's so interesting because I think we have all these wonderful ideas of how we want to raise our kids to be service-oriented and close and resilient and strong. And yet, if we just take a couple of steps back and be intentional about your daily habits, how you talk to each other, the kinds of traditions that you have, the values, the beliefs, those choices every day, how you speak to each other, that creates that kind of family culture. And it's so great to hear your perspective on that. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, early, right at the beginning of our conversation, you said that when you were trying to figure out your family culture, you got some really good pieces of advice about parenthood from your friends and you wrote them down in your Bible. And I'm just super curious as to what that advice was. There are three things that I've never forgotten that I always go back to, and my kids can quote them. One is, we are not raising teenagers, we're raising adults. And I thought that was fantastic. Wow, and yeah. My mom just said, if you ex expect to raise rebellious teenagers, you will not disappoint yourself. But if you start parenting your kids at one, two, and three with the idea that they're going to be amazing humans that you enjoy, they will not disappoint you either because you won't disappoint yourself when you raise them. So I focus on that. The next one is be thankful always. And it's a Bible verse. And so I was like, okay, well, duh. She goes, no, 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 always. Like when the poopy eggs were exploded on your way to church on Sunday always. morning. Always, that's hard. <laughs> all over you on your way to a wedding. Always find a way to be thankful. And so I felt a little like Pollyanna, you know, in different seasons and it felt very fake and hard, but we always come back to what we're thankful for. And then the third thing was, it's so silly. It was always touch feet. And, I, and this woman just <laughs> well, told me she's okay. Like, I did not expect that, <laughs> right? 
She said, when life is really bad and all the kids come into bed with you, never pull away. Always touch feet. And I was like, wow. And she said, and when you stand and look out at the future, stand close enough to always touch feet. I'm interested in how family culture is influenced by stories. So I've invited my friend Sam Payne, storyteller from the Appleseed, here to have a conversation about family culture and the importance of the stories we tell each other. Hi. It's so great to be here. I love it. I know. (laughs) I love talking about storytelling, and I love talking about how storytelling can impact a family. You know, I'm so glad to be here. Well, let's dive right into it. As far as your own family of origin, let's start there. What is your family culture like? How would you describe it? Well, I think that there are a lot of families. You know, a family culture gets built in a lot of ways. You know, yeah. I know families, and you know families whose culture is sort of uh, develops itself around. Oh, I don't know, extreme sports. You know, right. <laughs> you know, sporty my, family. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Outdoor activities, you uh-huh. know, uh, or whatever. You know, uh, going to Broadway shows. You know, sure. I mean, there are lots of sort of central activities around which a family culture kind of makes itself. You know, and in my family, the family culture kind of depended on conversation. <laughs> Okay, I like that. You know, so there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of talk. And, (laughs) and, And, of course, out of that talk sprang this kind of canon of family stories. And they get told again and again and again. Nobody apologizes for telling a story again that everybody knows they've they've heard. There's some sort of comfort in that and a sense of belonging, don't you think, of when I get together with my brothers and sisters or my parents and you say, hey, remember that one time when? Yeah, yeah. And I think we do enjoy hearing those stories again, though we make like we don't. Dad starts to tell the story (laughs) of whatever it is and everybody rolls their eyes and says, oh, not this old chestnut, you know, but I love it. I think it's a little bit like reading the Bible, for example, which we Hmm. do over and over and over again, right? We revisit the stories that are kind of foundational Bible stories. You know, every kid knows the story of, I don't know, Noah's Ark or Joseph in Egypt, not because he's only heard it once, but because he's heard it again and again and again and again, and not just in Sunday school, but we revisit those stories again and again and again to affirm certain things, right? And to enrich and deepen certain things. And we do the same thing in our families because in those family stories, even the ones that dad tells that we roll our eyes at, right, are contained the things that our family believes and thinks and loves and cherishes, you know, that it's all there. And revisiting those stories again and again and again and sort of defining kind of what that canon of stories is, what stories are included in it, is an exercise in sort of defining, again, who we are, what we believe, what we think. So I want to explore that a little bit because you're making me think about the family stories that we share you know, as brothers and sisters, and then with my own children in a different way. Because I think, oh, we just share stories, for example, in my family that are funny. We just (laughs) want (laughs) to laugh and remember funny things. Or my late husband, all of his stories were like bizarre. Like that would only (laughs) happen to you. And almost unbelievable, right? Uh, Kind of like a big fish (laughs) kind of story (laughs) told over and over again. And I think that it has informed the way that my kids tell stories or how I tell stories. But how aware do you think that most families are about the stories that they tell and how they connect to their family culture? Well, in any kind of storytelling, right, you want to avoid a kind of didacticism, you know, this sort of, I'm telling you this story so that you can make this certain (laughs) meaning out of it, right? Mm -hmm. We just follow the story. We just say the funny thing. We just say the bizarre thing. We just tell the thing that happened. But there are times when those stories kind of come back to you for unpacking. Even some of those stories that are funny or bizarre or whatever, you can bet that one of your children or you yourself at some point, one of those stories is going to come back to you, again, for a kind of unpacking. Right. When I was a little kid, I loved the Danny Kaye musical, 
Hans Christian Andersen, right? I knew all the songs, oh, you know. Yeah. There once was an ugly duckling with feathers all scrubby and brown. Oh, and the, my you know, mom I, used I, to yeah, sing sure. that to us. And I love those stories. And I remember at the end of the ugly duckling song, the ugly duckling who has now turned into a swan is gliding across the water. And Danny Kay characterizes how the Swan is gliding across the water by saying, with his head so noble and high, right? And I loved that line. I would kind of, as a six-year-old, kind of belt out that line at the end of, you know, a, a recitation of that story. And at about six or seven in my life, I was asked to be the ring bearer in the wedding of my aunt and uncle. And I was completely terrified by that enormous task. I think somebody had told me that my task was so important that they, like, couldn't get married without me, right? Oh. And I was like, I, <laughs> I better not mess this up. It was, it was enormous old. pressure, right? Yeah. And I got so freaked out, especially when I saw the little, like, purple velour tuxedo I was supposed to wear. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that I just, I ran out of the, the chapel of the Baptist church, and I ran into the coat closet and hid, and I was just never going to come out. And my mom came back there and found me in the coat closet, sort of pushed the coat coats aside and took me by the shoulders, took me in her arms. And after some tears, she said, listen, I know this is hard and I know you're nervous about it, but all you got to do is walk down that aisle with your head so noble and high. She knew the story that I loved and gave it back to me at a time when it was going to mean something. You know, that story kind of came back to me for unpacking in a way I never anticipated that that story would actually be of practical help in my life, but there it was. And these stories do come back to us, even the funny ones, even the bizarre ones. And we don't really have to worry so much as we're telling those stories around the kitchen table or the living room that we are conveying all the meaning, right? Right? (laughs) Just tell the stories. That's the fun part anyway. But those things come back to us to rescue us when we need them. It's a powerful tool, and I think for a lot of parents, we have all these great intentions of what we want to pass on to our children, and being able to present it in a way that is easy for them to remember and also very empowering and connecting. I mean, storytelling is just where it's at. Yeah. It connects us to the people we love. It also connects us to where we're from. You know, it connects us to the people that we're from. It, It turns our hearts to the people and the circumstances that gave rise to us. And we find ourselves connected to something a lot bigger than just ourselves or even just bigger than our family that lives in the house together. So you grow up and create a family of your own. How intentional were you with the kinds of stories that you told your kids or still do? Not very intentional at all. Not very That's actually a relief and sort (laughs) of a surprise for me to hear. Yeah, not very intentional at all. I mean, we found our way into some really fun activities. It was the joy of my life that my sons enjoyed being read to. And that went on for a long time. My wife and our daughter and I, our daughter who still lives with us, we still read books together. And that's just the pleasure of my life. So there are some kind of storytelling activities that sort of took root, right? Yeah. But, uh, but in, in terms of being really intentional about it, I guess the best example of intentional storytelling comes from the pandemic era, right? Mm -hmm. My siblings and I live very far from each other. I've got a sister in the UK and a brother in Tennessee and a brother in LA and I'm in Utah. And as a kind of reaching out to keep together during that time, we decided that we would have a family Zoom call every week. We're, of course, not the only ones who do that. You no, know, but, but it's we're, sweet. Yeah, yeah, we have this family Zoom call every week, and we're on Zoom for a couple of hours. And those hours are filled with telling stories. Those hours are filled with sharing experiences with which we're all familiar. We've lived them as children, you know. But we're finding this real usefulness in that kind of concerted, focused Let's share that story of that camping trip that we went on when we were kids. And here we are, all of us adults. And this has been the time in our life when we're sort of focusing up and saying, let's look this storytelling exercise kind of straight in the face. Oh, that's interesting. What did you discover? Well, one of the things we discovered is that we all have different memories, right? (laughs) Oh, I bet. We all have different memories. You know, you think of the things that have happened to you in company with other people. And you remember not only 
the things that happened or a version of the things that happened, but your memories are often quite specific. I mean, you remember what the other people in the room were wearing. You think that you have a complete picture of of the thing that happened. And then when you get in a room with the other people who were there, then you start to get this incredible variety of perspective and point of view. And that's what's been fun sharing with my siblings, experiences that we all remember, but because we feel like we remember them, haven't been super overt in our lives about sort of saying, here's the truth of that experience. We just kind of have have kept those things inside. And now we're sharing them. Now we've created this forum for sharing them. And my younger brother will say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the room that that happened in. Or that's not, no, no, I was 15. I wasn't six, you know, when that happened. And that's been great fun. I bet. Do you realize now as an adult, what kind of values maybe you thought that your family culture represented? Has it more or changed in any way that you think, oh, no, actually, our family is a little bit more like this than I thought. (laughs) Yeah, I think we would always have characterized ourselves as a loving family, Mm -hmm. a close family. But then when you look at our behavior, especially because we live so far away from one another, when you look at our behavior, you think these guys hardly ever even talk. (laughs) You you know, I mean, an outsider might look at us and say, oh, clearly they feel a lot of affection for each other, but they're not, they're not in each other's world. And that has kind of changed. You know, I would have thought before the pandemic, before we started engaging in this kind of focused storytelling, really, I would have thought that my brothers and my sister were a particular way. And as I talk to them and as we share these stories, it's just been this kind of rich rediscovery of who these people are. And I like them. There's something very beautiful (laughs) about that because we don't stay the same way that we do when we were younger. And it's kind of funny to talk about how, like, I used to fight with my sister Gina all the time. We were very competitive and now we're very close. And and sometimes we sort of, or I find myself rewriting history a little bit to make myself look a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, it's just kind of funny now. Uh, But as it turns transforms and morphs, I'm I'm a little bit more aware of how those stories sort of play out because I'm interpreting them how I feel like my kids would interpret right. them as well. Yeah. Like, well, yeah. I, you know, I want to make myself the hero in this story, even yeah. though I clearly am not or, or whatever. And I think that that sort of changes over time. But I also feel like there is a great value in just presenting the facts as they happened <laughs> and being able to be okay with that sort of transformation. Yeah. And it's hard to get down to that, isn't it? It's it hard is. to get down to that because our memories are not like r- real life, right? Real life pushes against us in a way that's kind of outside our control sometimes. But our memories change themselves. (laughs) Our memories sort of conform to the things that we want to say about them. Which is interesting coming from you as a story, a professional storyteller. Yeah, yeah, they really do. And so that's one of the benefits of kind of sharing stories in a concerted way as a group, as a family. Because in that, kind of cauldron, right? We do sort of get down to some of the things that really happened. Now, do you have an example of that, of the benefit of maybe sharing a story, sharing the different ways that we each remember it and sort of what that contributes to a culture? Yeah, there's an experience that I had with my younger brother that was foundational for me. We were on a hike with my dad. My brother nearly went over a waterfall. He certainly would have perished, right? And it was just sort of by the skin of his teeth that he survived. And that became a really foundational childhood experience for all of us. And I have sort of gone back to that again Mm -hmm. and again and again and kind of thought it through. And it has manifested itself in essentially in the way that I love my brother. I had this moment where I almost lost him. It became a really big deal for me. And just a couple of years ago, that, that happened when we were eight and 10 or six and eight. I mean, we were very, very young. And not too long ago, just a couple of years ago, I was at my brother's house in Tennessee and around the kitchen table late at night. I said, tell me your version of the waterfall experience. I don't think I had ever done that. 
And the first words out of his mouth were, oh, yeah, the waterfall experience. That was huge. Were you there? <laughs> and we realized together that, wow. oh, good heavens, we've each been carrying around parts of this story. And we sort of put those parts together. And I learned things that night just sort of swapping our our respective versions of that story about my brother's really kind of deepest feelings about family and faith. And I mean, it really opened a door for us that I'll always treasure that evening, that night that we spent around the table kind of unpacking that story. Wow. It is a powerful way to connect, (laughs) not just with your family, although certainly it is, but also like with yourself, your core sort of values, what you think about life, how you came to feel that. I know in extreme circumstances and in Examples of tragedy, you know, Mm -hmm. in families or Mm -hmm. where families are broken up, whether it's by divorce or misunderstanding or – and I'm also curious about when things like that happen, when there are disagreements, when there is sort of time apart from each other. You still have the echoes of that family and that family culture, and I always wonder what happens to that. (laughs) What do you think? Well, again – We were never very concerted. We were never very purposeful in Mm -hmm. our sharing of stories. But now, as uh, grown-ups who have defined to some degree some of the things that we think and some of the things we believe and some of the things we love, we go back to some of those stories that we told as kids or some of those things that happened to us as kids because they serve as kind of a shelving system on which we can place some of these beliefs, beliefs and concerns and loves and things like that, you know. And that's what storytelling does. You know, if if I were to say to somebody, especially somebody who may differ from me, if I were to say, this is what I believe or this is what I think about that, that's sometimes a little bit confrontational. That's Mm -hmm. sometimes a confrontational thing. But couched in a story, I'm giving you not only the thing I believe, but I'm giving you the context in which you can understand the thing that I believe. Every... Every story, even the funny ones, even the bizarre ones, right? Every story says, essentially, this is something my wife says all the time. She says, every story says, once upon a time, something bad happened, but we worked to get through. And here's the story of what we did. And stories teach us how to get through. I'm here with Jessica Fru of Husband-in-Law Podcast. Thanks for your time. Yes, of course. I wanted to have a conversation with you about establishing family culture Mm. because you have an ex-husband, a current husband, stepchildren. And when we talk about family culture, I feel like... There's an assumption, and maybe it's my assumption, that, oh, if there's just one family, then it's easier to, if you're trying to incorporate other people, and then it gets super complicated. But I realize I don't have any experience in this, and so I wanted to get your take. What is it like blending family cultures together? So, honestly, it can be a really beautiful, amazing thing. And well, that's encouraging. And I yeah. like hearing that. <laughs> I like that this is where we're starting. It can be really hard and different than what you expect. And I feel like that's the key is to kind of go into it with the most open mind you can have of this is probably not going to look how I thought it was going to look. These dynamics are not going to fall in place the way I hoped they would. And it's okay to mourn that. I think that's important too, that you take that time to- Yeah, I wanted this kind of culture. I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. How can I get the things that are really important? And that's what I always come back to. For me, my thing in life is I want people to feel loved. I want people to feel loved and seen. And that's so that's where I focus. Okay, this is not what I wanted it to look like. Definitely not what I hoped for. But how do I find love within this? Oh, that's really beautiful. (laughs) So share with me like some of your successes of like, maybe this is an unexpected part of our family culture, but it's like one of my favorite, or this is what happened. And it was really great for my stepkids, or I learned this from them. What do you think has been your greatest success? So my stepdaughter is 13 and it's been years of 
knowing that there are things going on that we don't know about or things that aren't told between houses, which is fine. And we have respected that. And probably typical of a lot of... So typical. And honestly, to a point the way it has to be, which can be really hard to accept. But in the last six months or so, she has started finding me as a safe place of opening up to me. And I know that that's because she's seen that while I share stories and I tell our story, I don't tell other people's stuff. <laughs> yeah, and you so can giving be a good confidant. Yes, being a safe place of you can tell me anything you need to say or do, and I am not going to tell anybody. I am not going to share your stuff, yeah. but I want to give you a place where you can feel seen and heard and respected. And so in the last six months, she's really opened up to me about things, and it's been interesting to watch her blossom in that and to feel this confidence in owning who she is. And so there's moments like that, that I have waited eight years for. It sounds like it's hard one. And it was, it's been hard to get there, but respecting that privacy, respecting those moments of wanting to pry and dig, but Mm -hmm. didn't, or wanting to go take information that I had gained and use it in our favor to get more time with the kids or whatever, but just understanding that, you know what, this child just needs a place to say this. They're not wanting me to take action and understanding when the time is to take action. So it's been eight years of kind of letting this relationship ride and play it out. And now seeing the fruits of that, of being able to connect with my stepkids and my daughter a lot in a different way. And also, you know, one of the beautiful things too is my daughter... (laughs) gets to see how to love people in different ways. So this is a whole little different thing. But, but that I'm is like, such an important part of a family's culture. If there is anything that I would hope for her is that she gets to recognize she can love herself and that she is going to be loved no matter what. And then we get to take that love and spread it to other people. And she really sees that because she has a dad that is gay and he's living with his boyfriend. And I love them. I genuinely adore these men who show up for my daughter. And she has three dads basically at this point who have got her back. And so just seeing that we don't live the same lives, we don't do the same things, that does not matter. There's still love and respect and joy within those relationships. And I just think she's going to be a powerhouse for good to be able to help other people feel seen and loved while also loving herself. So those are a couple of the things that I really feel like have been a long time coming, but also are the the beautiful side of this. It's such a beautiful lesson really to have learned and understanding how that actually works. Like if this is just negotiated, you know, I have never had this experience Mm -hmm. before. So I always think it looks like two families coming together, but it doesn't seem to me that you would describe it that way, which kind of changes the questions that I have for you. So when you are at home and you guys are spending time together, how would you define that family culture? What sort of either adjectives do you describe it or activities that are like, nope, this is our family culture? And was that negotiated with your husband or did that just happen? So I I feel like our family culture within the four walls of our home with, yeah. you know, my stepkids, my daughter, my husband, and myself, if we just narrow it down to that family, I want to say it's together, but separate. I think we think that we're supposed to blend these families because that's what it's called. I don't called, even know what that means, is a, though. Blended yeah, a blended family. Yeah. And for me, it is very much not, it does not feel blended mm. and often does not feel unified. But there are things that we come together for. And I have found that I'm just so grateful for those moments and to yeah. embrace them. We were out playing basketball. We put like a sports court in our backyard and... Penny came up to me, this was just a couple days ago, and she goes, Mom, I am so glad all five of us are out here together. And it's taken us a long time to get there. But like playing games as a family is one thing we always enjoy together. We got a pool because we knew that was something we needed to bring our family together. And we do come together in the hard times. Everybody's known that they're loved, but sometimes it's more like Matt has to engage with his kids because that's what's safest for them. And so while I'm there and they know that I love them, I'm not involved in that process as much. And so instead, I, you know, embrace those moments that we do have together where I would love to bond with them over the hard things because I think that's a very bonding experience. Yeah. That's not my calling in their life. And so finding it's just what because is- just you love too much. Yeah. 
it, it, it's the byproduct. I'm on your team. Yeah. Like, you're just like, I just want to give so much. But yeah, yeah it might not be appropriate, but yeah. I relate to that feeling. Uh-huh. I'm just, I want more. Yeah. And just letting them know, you know, I am here. Yeah. I'm here when you need me. And that and is not nothing. It. That it is, is not yeah. nothing. There is more significant, I think, than I thought a few years ago. Yeah. Hugely significant in those moments. So within the walls of our family, I think there's like these different dynamics. There's Matt and his kids, and I try to support them taking their own time together. Yeah. I support Penny and I. I realize that it's okay for Penny and I to go do the things we want to do, just the two of us, and not feeling like I have to invite everybody, but I get to have these special moments with just my daughter as well. And then there's moments with just Matt and I, and there's moments that I get with my stepdaughter or my stepson. And like I said, they look different than I thought, but that's okay. And it works. And the whole reason we put in a pool and a sports court is because we knew they were things that our kids loved and enjoyed and that we could get together as a family to do. Mm-hmm. So we've kind of created that space literally at our house to be able to have those moments to connect where it's easy to just walk out the back door and connect or sit down and play games. We've simplified it, I feel like, in a way that those moments can just happen whenever they're going to happen instead of forcing them. I really feel like the big takeaway for me of initially not understanding it, you know, and how it would work and Mm -hmm. is just letting it be what it's going to be and waiting with love, Mm -hmm. just waiting with love and making it simple. Yeah. And it's very clear that you and Matt have talked about these things, that Mm -hmm. you are open about it instead of forcing something that you want that maybe might not be in the best interest of the family. Yeah. Which is hard. It is hard. There have been lots of hard moments and conversations and a lot of grace given between between all of us. But what a beautiful expression of love within a family culture. Mm-hmm. That the very way that you're expressing your family culture and the desire is in doing it, which is being there to love. Yeah. Family culture changes all of the time. I talk about this with my friends, and we usually start from a place of ideals, right? Before you have kids, before you're dealing with actual real human beings. What did you hope? Oh, I was going to have fresh flowers on the table every day, and I was going to be the kind of mom that, you know, took my kids out on adventures, and we were going to be the adventurous family. And then, you know, they get older, and you're like, oh, it is such a pain to leave the house. Actually, we're the family that never leaves the house. You know, people change their minds all of the time. A great place to really test out this theory is to look at different parents like at a baby shower. And when you ask the expectant parents what they hope for for their kids and they start talking about how their kid is never going to have sugar or how their kid will never act like the kids that they see throwing tantrums or how they are going to have a strict sleeping schedule, whatever it is, you know, the best of intentions that they may or may not have, look at the older seasoned parents and they're usually like mumbling or their eyebrows are getting high like, oh, well, good luck with that. Or, you know, don't be that parent, you know, that never says never, you know, never say never. You just might end up eating your words. I mean, it never dawned on me that I would ever have a kid that would be on a leash. And I know that they have the cute ones that look like little teddy bears that are like a harness. And I don't care what kind of stuffed animal you put on it. It's a leash. And I used to judge other parents there. I said it, you know, like I thought you can strap them in a, you know, stroller or hold their hand or hold them or something like that. But like you got to teach them how to act in public. Well, that was before (laughs) my second son was born. And I found myself in the middle of these like little teeny tiny, like will fit one person, not two people little streets in Dollish, England while my husband was getting a graduate degree. And I was left alone for uh, many, many hours with these two little boys, 21 months apart. And it was rough because one would dart one way, one would dart the other way. Well, I could usually use reason to coax Miles, the older one, to hold my hand. But Owen, who was 18 months, he's an adrenaline seeker, right? And he would see just how far he could get over the cliffs before I would rush and like grab him and save him. He ran into the ocean, freezing, freezing water in the middle of October and November. It didn't matter. He'd get mad when we pulled him out. He would bend the kitchen cabinets so that he could climb on top of the refrigerator. I mean, this kid 
could just find the most dangerous thing and do it. So guess what? That kid got a harness, and I called it a leash, and I don't regret it. And I'm glad I did it because it kept him safe, and you're welcome, Owen. So (laughs) when we're dealing with family culture and ideas of who we're going to be and what kind of family we're going to be, it is really easy to get caught up in the ideals. We all do it because we want the very best for our kids. But what happens when you have a big issue of like, hey, this is really important to us. And it's not as trivial as, say, if they use a binky or if they have a leash. So for example, my faith is really important to me. And it was to my late husband as well. You know, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we had really took it seriously. We wanted to be a family who didn't just talk the talk, but we walked the walk, right? That we showed up. We would always say, you know, the Clarks show up. We go to church. We go to the activities. We serve. If there is is an opportunity um, to, you know, to go to a camp or to clean the church building, whatever it was, it was like the Clarks show up. And this was something that we wanted to be a huge part of our family, you know, among a lot of other things. But this was like paramount. And on a personal note, this really meant a lot to me. I didn't just grow up in the church, but I had found great comfort here and great truth. And I felt, you know, a sense of purpose in my own personal identity. And being a member of this faith was something that made me other, maybe different, you know, growing up. And so I, I took it seriously. And so this is something that I was very intentional about. And my husband and I were like, yeah, this is just something that is our family culture. And so when our oldest was about 15 or 16, he wasn't sure that he believed in this faith and wanted to practice it. And this caused us to really think very deeply about how important it was to our family culture. And it was still so important to us personally because we thought this was such a great and a positive way for them, our kids to feel, you know, connected to God and to view the world and to view their purpose in it and their identity and an opportunity to feel such love and connection to their community. So it wasn't something that we took lightly And so we had a lot of discussions with Miles about why we go to church, you know, how it's an opportunity to serve people that you might not normally do. It pushes you out of your comfort zone to work with and worship with people who are different than you, and that it's a source of truth, of finding answers to questions and to feeling connected to God. And we talked about the reasons why it would be difficult to go and why it is a struggle and it is an effort and how a lot of the doctrine is confusing. And there are things that we don't know. And so we talked about all of it and we kind of laid it out and tried to be open and honest. And I have to hand it to Miles. His reaction to our discussions about it and why we felt it was so important really revealed and peeled back a layer to our family culture that maybe I hadn't appreciated enough before. And that is our ability to really be open and honest and to want to know what you're really thinking and not just have it be totally performative, but to have it be real. So if you're not feeling it and and you have questions and worries that you can talk about it, and that's the kind of family that we wanted to have, where no matter what you believed or didn't believe, that you belonged. And Miles was so kind about it. And after we had discussed it for a while and we were like, we just really feel like we want to do this together as a family, he volunteered. And so he participated and he was a good sport about it. and, And he was a good friend and he actually really served a lot of people in our ward. And there was a special needs girl in the youth that he helped to serve. And he was in a choir. And then when he left home and when he was on his own, he decided not to practice our religion. And it's interesting because I had such a black and white perspective of it before early on when it was in you know, the idealized version of what I wanted our family culture to be. And I kind of thought it was an all or nothing thing. And that was a me problem and not a Miles problem because everyone has to figure out what they want, who they are, and what they believe on their own, right? And so part of our family culture, a part that that Miles revealed to us was that it was unconditional love. It was communication. It was connection. It was a sense of belonging that we would always be rooting for each other and on each other's team. And it's what I wanted, but it wasn't revealed until this experience. And I'm really grateful for that because 
you know, there's lots of different kinds of families and there's lots of different kinds of expectations, right? Like you can have the expectation to that, you know, all your kids are going to be a member of a certain political party or you can have certain hobbies or interests that are so paramount to your family culture that you think that that is the identity. But what I'm grateful for this experience is that it's kind of a hinge point of what the family culture actually is and what really matters, which is this... <laughs> Ironically, the things that I really love about my faith, which is unconditional love and connection and belonging and a sense of purpose and, and being in that together. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by McKay Menden and Lisa Valentine Clark with help from Michael Combs and Kaya Dibb with music and sound design by Sam Clayson. We'd love your feedback. Please join Lisa's listener community where join in on the conversation, continue the conversation, start a conversation there. You can find us on Facebook. We're also over on Instagram and you can always email us with show ideas or suggestions to thelisashow at byu.edu. Now next week on The Lisa Show, what is the weirdest or the coolest way that you've ever met a friend as an adult? For me, because I'm single and I've been divorced for a while, I know this is silly, but I have met quite a few good friends from, like, dating apps. Um, for real? Yeah, for real. <laughs> I know it's not crazy. And let me no, be I, clear, like, hopeful. 90% of them were not friends. <laughs> but a few people who, you know, you connected with, but it just didn't go anywhere. And I really do have people that I still, like, hang out with and go to lunch with like five years later. So you just never know when you're going to meet people. But again, I think the key is you have to put yourself out there and that's so hard. That's next week on The Lisa Show.